Hey, welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. My name is Tim. I am your host. Uh, This is a special bonus episode of the podcast. We are joined today by a friend of the podcast, Dr. Bradley Jerzak. I'm also joined by our president and founder. I call him dad. You can call him Steve. Uh, And just a heads up, what you're hearing uh, is... uh, interview we recorded with Brad. He's going to begin with some teaching. Uh, But at the beginning, we had some technical difficulties, which led to some bad audio just for the first couple minutes, and then things uh, kind of fixed themselves. So you may hear a couple of edits. We apologize for that, but do stick around. Uh, Some fantastic content. I'm not sure. I think we talked for about an hour and 40 minutes. Absolutely marvelous stuff. So uh, without further ado, here is my friend Brad. Okay, I'll do my best anyway. Um, I have a long relationship with the Bible. In fact, from the time I, of my earliest memories, I loved Scripture even before I could read it because it was the one thing I could thumb through on my dad's lap during church if the pastor was over our heads. And so I'd look at the map pages at least. And then as a, as a young boy, I, I began to read and and. I noticed that in my dad's Bible, he had underlined certain verses that were really important to him. And so um, eventually, when I got my own first Bible, uh, which I had determined not to own until I had memorized 30 verses, just some sort of, I don't know what that was, religious performance orientation or something like that. Um, I I didn't want a Bible until I had proven to myself that I took it seriously. So as a seven-year-old, after memorizing 30 passages, I then got my first Bible, and I began to highlight whatever my dad had highlighted in his Bible, and in that way kind of internalized it. Uh, I was also baptized fairly young and had a strange experience with that, where I, I had this sense of illumination. I didn't know that word at the time, but I could feel... Uh, some connection to my baptism with an understanding of scripture. And I began to read voraciously. And so the first book of the Bible I read was was the book of Acts. For whatever reason, one night my dad said, hey, well, you know, what story would you like to hear tonight? That was our daily practice. I started, I said, Paul and Silas. And so we read that. I read from there to the end of the book, then started back in chapter one and read the whole book again. And that was my introduction to how different the church is today than what we see in the early parts of our history. Uh, I was just talking about how my my dad had read to me the story of Paul and Silas. I continued reading from there to the end of the book of Acts. Then I started back in chapter one and read the whole book over. And that's the first time I discovered how different the book of Acts was from the church today. Just about unrecognizable in some ways. And so places like Impact Nations give me a lot of hope because there I have some residence. I there I can see reminiscences of the of the early church faith and practice. Um, but I skipped from there to saying, you know, I grew up, I went to a college where we learned a statement something like this: that the canon of scripture is the authoritative inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. And that's what I want to problematize a little bit because it's so familiar to us and unpack. And so this is not a negation, but it is a clarification and in some ways pushback at a few of those words. So first of all, we called the canon of scripture. 
And uh, what we meant by that was that the scriptures functioned as a canon, that is, a ruler or a straight edge, uh, some kind of quality control that, that uh, and I can affirm that, but I do want to say that canon of scripture is not the canon that the church began with. The early church called um, their gospel the canon of faith. As a canon of faith, uh, what we have is this, that Christ died for us according to the scriptures, that he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. So, in other words, in 1 Corinthians 15, in the first paragraph, Paul describes a gospel that they had received, and it's the story of Jesus. And it's a story that makes sense of them because they were familiar with how the First Testament had prefigured it, had pointed to it, was witnessing to it. But really, the canon of faith then is the gospel, or as Jude calls it, the faith once delivered. And so then, uh, what is the canon of Scripture? Well, the New Testament was gathered and developed according to whether a book aligned or did not align with that canon of faith. So uh, uh, a book is canonical, not because it got in the Bible. A book is canonical because it served that wit as a witness to the canon of faith, to the gospel. Second, um, I, I mentioned there that, you know, that it is that this canon of scripture is the word of God. And, and I want to push back a bit against that from the Bible itself. Does the Bible call itself the word of God, or what does it refer to when it's talking about the word of God? As a little child, I remember singing the B-I-B-L-E. Yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. So that became very clear to me that word of God must be the Bible. And, and in memorizing my first 30 verses, one of them would been, have been from Hebrews 4, that the word of God is quick and sharp and powerful. You know, and it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's able to do this and that, it, it, it. And yet we fail to recognize the very next verse, the pronoun is he. Who is the word of God that is quick and sharp and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to penetrate my heart? He's referring to Jesus Christ. And so um, in that sense, then, we go back to the Bible <laughs> that's another song we learned. Back to the Bible, back to the Bible, back to the Word of God. Okay, let's do that. What does the Bible say in John 1.1? 1, 1? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this Word, we read a few verses later, is that became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God is our Lord Jesus Christ. The Word of God um, is a person. And secondarily, the word of God is the story about that person. So we, when we read that the word of God spread quickly in the book of Acts, it's not talking about Bible distribution. It's talking about the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ that was spreading quickly across the globe. So it is the word of God is the person of Jesus and his story. And then um, in a third sense, we do have some some discussion of the word of God in the Old Testament, and there it's specific to God's covenant promises, especially his new covenant promises fulfilled in Jesus. So this word of God language, I, I would like to be more biblical about it and say that the biblical sense of the word of God is, 
is our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel concerning him. And the Bible is a faithful witness to that story. All right, so I've mentioned uh, uh, the canon of scripture as over against the canon of faith, which is the gospel. I've mentioned the word of God now as the person of Jesus and his story as over against the B-I-B-L-E. But what else do we say about the gospel? So we have, or about the Bible, we have these three I words, uh, inspired, infallible, and inerrant. And in a sense, you're getting a chronology of the church doubling down, trying to defend the Bible, because uh, first of all, we would say that the scriptures are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in fact, um, I, I think that uh, the passage in in uh, 1 Timothy that, that says that all scripture is God-breathed, and it's profitable for instruction, for peru- um, reproof for training and righteousness so that, that we would be holy, thoroughly furnished, equipped for good works, all of that. Absolutely. Do we hear the wind of the spirit blowing through these scriptures? Absolutely. And what are they blowing primarily? Well, Jesus says on the road to Emmaus to his two disciples on resurrection afternoon, that Moses, the prophets, later he adds the Psalms, and all the scriptures are pointing towards his passion and resurrection, that the Son of, that the Son of Man must suffer and then enter into his glory, which refers to his resurrection. And so is all scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. To do what? To point to Jesus. And in that sense, we might even say that the scriptures are infallible. That is, that they don't fail. They don't fail in that purpose. However, I want to say that in the early church, they didn't say that the scriptures were infallible. That was an important word reserved for God. The Holy Spirit is infallible. And the Holy Spirit, who is infallible, spoke through fallen people fallible authors who are able to express the good news, but through their own worldviews and perspectives, some of which we would now resist today. So, for example, um, do we see the infallible Holy Spirit speaking the message of Jesus through his servant, David? Absolutely, we do. Uh, Is there an infallible testimony of Jesus through his words, Uh, perhaps the spirit's infallibility, but what about David? Well, David, even within the Psalms, we see him moving from tribalism and militarism into the mercy of God for the whole world and a resistance to violence. Uh, We see this right within the text. So when when uh, David expresses his lament, calling for the slaughter even of his enemy's children, that their heads would be dashed on the stone, the, the little babies even. Is that, a, is that an infallible sort of expression of the spirit's point of view? Absolutely not. On the other hand, we see blowing through that very psalm promises about the Messiah and 
that the psalmist used to expunge malice from David's heart. And so you're, you're getting a mixture then of the spirit's breath or wind blowing through with a messianic anticipation. And you're also seeing the very real human aspects of scripture where the authors are allowed to tell their story and to feel their feelings and to express that. And I suppose in that sense, because the spirit inspires that honest confession of fallible human points of view, uh, then, then in, in a secondary sense, we could say, well, it infallibly does that. No, he does, or she, if you prefer. But what's, what's infallible and inspired and authoritative is the one who's blowing through this and the one to whom it's pointing. Um, we then, so, so do I believe in inspiration of scripture? Absolutely. Do I believe in the infallibility of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. What about this word inerrancy? Now, I said there's a chronology to this where the church is doubling down, and here's what happened. Within modernity, so we're talking very recently, you begin to get resistance to the Bible by enlightenment people who just can't handle um, the miracle stories, for example. They need to get out more. They need to go on a, on a journey with impact nations is what they need to do. It's just a, a real ignorance and a narrowness that can't believe in the supernatural. I mean, it's happening all the time. But anyway, you get this pushback and it's a hyper-rationalism, very empirical kind of modernism. And what happens is that the, the that Christians, conservative Christians, thought they needed to defend the Bible in that courtroom. And so they become modernists themselves and they start defending the Bible in ways they absolutely didn't need to and shouldn't have even to the point where they're saying, we don't even care if it's not true. We still have to believe it, or we don't care what science or facts say. And so they develop this doctrine of inerrancy that just expects way more of the Bible and way less of it than the Bible itself does. So um, there's a lot of versions of this. I remember seeing one book and it had, you know, probably 20 chapters on inerrancy and each was a different definition. But the one that came to sort of win the day it was called the Chicago Statement of Inerrancy. Now, listen to how it overpromises. Um, now, let, I, I've just got to pull that up for myself here. It says this, being holy, as in the whole thing, and verbally, that is the very words, God-given. So God gave the very words, all of the, every word. Scripture is without error or fault in all its teaching. Okay. But not only that, no less in what it states about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God than its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. In other words, what they're saying is inerrancy does not just teach that scripture is faultless in what it teaches and in its witness to saving grace. It's also completely without error in anything it says about how God created the world, the histo history of world events, and its own literary origins. 
Um, that's a massive overreach. And it was applied this way. Um, it was applied without reference to genre. Or so, for example, where the Bible's authors choose to use uh, mythology or fiction, they're allowed to do that, aren't they? Well, inerrancy says, no, they're actually not allowed to do that. And so you need to read every word and in a literalist way. So out of inerrancy came a, a real hard, uh, hardcore young earth creationism that, that you, to be faithful to God, you had to believe the earth could be no more than 10,000 years old. The universe could be no more than 10,000 years old, no matter what scientists could prove to us from the strata of the world or from astronomy. Um, it also meant that, that we would take books like um, that, that tell stories of history and say, no, that you, you would have to say this in a way that you could videotape it with a camera. Like it, there's, so it's, it's devoid of theological reflection, or let's say even the kind of propaganda you would get to, um, uh, to uphold the kingship and stuff like that. So anyway, uh, they, they're really promising a lot here that every single word is, is utterly true. Even when it comes, it governs over science governs over history and so on. And then they, and then they really cornered themselves and they said inescapably that scripture is inescapably impaired. If this total divine inerrancy is in any way limited or disregarded. Well, that really set guys like me up because it would say what they're saying is if you can show us one contradiction, then we have to throw out the whole book. It's like they made that rule up themselves. The liberals didn't make that rule. That was, that was um, conservative evangelicals who just really, really gone hardcore now. So, so then when I, when I began to see how long it takes um, the strata of the earth uh, to let's say compress coal into diamonds. Well, then I, I know I'm not dealing with a 10,000 year old universe. When I know how long it takes stars to send their light across galaxies to be received in our telescopes, then I know I'm in big trouble. And, and, and then, and then it's just like, well, if, if the flood Noah's flood didn't count cover Mount Everest, then Jesus is not risen. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, what a horrendous leap. And so we just had inerrancy, I think, led to a lot of apostasy, people walking away from Jesus, because I can show you websites that give you a list of 500 contradictions. That it just, but so what? Um, the Bible's way better than that. The Bible is able to reveal. Um, God's son, the savior of the world, establishing his kingdom on earth through the perspectives of God's children who got to tell the story. I love how Pete N says that God let his children tell the story. His children were embedded with worldviews and with perspectives that we now know are defunct. And it doesn't make the message defunct because the message is Jesus. And so um, that's that's a little bit about, about these three eyes inspiration. Yes. 
infallibility of the spirit. Yes. Inerrancy of the Bible, you're just trying too hard and it's doing damage. Uh, instead, we come back to the word of God, Jesus Christ himself, and we say, do these scriptures faithfully testify about the word of God who we've come to know and love and experience? Absolutely. And in fact, they are our quality control. I'll just say one last thing about that before we move to conversation and questions. Um, when I'm reading the four gospels, I'm even reading very different perceptions there, some of the factual differences. And instead of thinking of that as a problem, I'm like, we have we have four people who weren't colluding to tell a lie. They're giving us four theological perspectives on the truth. And what I know about Jesus, I know through his presence in my heart and the stories on those pages. So when I'm reading the Gospels, I am looking to align my heart and the story as it's told. When it doesn't, when the Jesus I know in my heart doesn't look like the Jesus I see in the scriptures, I have to check two things. And this, is, this might be the most important takeaway of my talk. I need to double check my heart that I'm not just creating projections of Jesus that are actually what I hope or think. But I also need to check my uh, hermeneutics or my interpretation of those texts. What if my heart actually has got Jesus right, but my interpretation of the scriptures is missing a point? And so the Bible's not the problem. My heart's not the problem, but I do got to check for projections and I got to check for interpretations. And I will I will come to one verse. And when they're not, when, when the two are bumping against each other, I will spend time, I'll spend a year praying and listening and studying over that scripture to see, was it my heart that was off or my head that was off? And what needs to come uh, into alignment so, so, so that I have a more accurate sense of what this means. Um, so that's, boy, you know, you can't say much in 20 minutes or half an hour, but I have included all of this in great detail uh, in a more Christ-like word. All right, boys, questions, comments, concerns, epiphanies, revelations. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Brad. Uh, I want to just jump in and say, um, <laughs> Hold the book up again, would you? Yes. I've read this not once, but twice. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't even have pictures. <laughs> um, and the, one of the reasons, Brad, why I've uh, I've really worked hard to get the word out about today is not only, you know, my love for you, and I, I love the way we can talk and discuss, but I think I think this book is so, so vital for followers of Jesus. Yeah. And it's so freeing, at times challenging, but incredibly freeing. And uh, that's all I wanted to say for now. I've got questions, but I'll, I'll let I'll let Tim. And we've got many, many questions and comments. Yeah, there's lots of comments coming through. The I, uh, my eyesight is still good enough. I can still see him from across the room, I think. Uh, let me just say, by the way, uh, we've got links uh, in the uh, in the notes for the podcast today, but also 
Um, I think Isaiah can throw up a lower third there with the website as well. Uh, so if you if you need to buy the book, which if you haven't already, then you need to go buy the book. Uh, you can head to bradjerzak.com slash a more Christ-like word, uh, or we've got a direct link uh, in the notes as well directly to Amazon to purchase it there too. And I would, I would highly recommend it. Um, definitely chapter 12, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, all right, Brad, a quick question, and we're going to jump into a couple from the comments there, but one that I had real quick. Inerrancy, you said that was, that's really a product of modernity. Was inerrancy, were they answering another problematic theology that was coming to the fore at that time when they developed inerrancy? Was that in response or reaction to something that could have been equally as dangerous? Well, sure. Yeah, it, it was in response to the the liberal kind of approaches um, that that wanted to demythologize everything. In other words, demythologize would would basically say, "How do we read this book, assuming that miracles can't happen?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and now the inerrantists are saying, "How do we read this book in a way that says contradictions can't happen?" So they're both saying what the Bible can't do, mm-hmm. and so just like read the book. Yeah. But yeah, so there, the Enlightenment folks are just so they, they just they just so thought that any kind of talk of miracles was superstition, and that it was damaging to faith, and and that there was good enough ethical guidance that that they sh- that we should retain the Bible and then just treat all of the miracle stories as mythology. So that I think, um, and, and and also you know. They were taking the liberals were taking seriously the reality of an ancient universe, the reality of evolutionary processes, the reality of of, of um, you know scientific discovery, and um, but they they had headed off in in just this radical doubt that came from Descartes' rationalism, radical doubt, and and now. Um, it's like the the evangelical reaction would had been a that um, they were they, they were radically uh, credulous. <laughs> that means mm-hmm. um, we'll believe anything that the Bible says. Meanwhile, by the way, they wouldn't believe anything outside of the Bible. And so, people in that era who were seeing miracles, for example. The evangelicals were as hard as on them as the liberals. It it can only be it can only happen inside the box of the Bible instead of seeing the Bible as opening up a world to us of possibilities. And um, yeah, yeah. so they were both they were all modernists. It's it, and uh, trapped in the same courtroom. Modernism. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Same coin. Both problematic. Can I? Yep. Jump? I keep saying I'm going to wait, but I love this book so much. <laughs> Two things that really, really stood out to me uh, were what you talked about on rhetoric, quite a bit of it. That's been personally very helpful for me as I've been uh, studying and even as I've been teaching on Matthew's Gospel. You and I have talked on the phone several times. But the second one, and I'd love you to touch base on this a little bit, is the whole thing of anthropomorphism, of of projecting uh, human characteristics, um, sometimes the writer's bias uh, onto God. And uh, you give some wonderful examples, you know, for Samuel 15, the Amalekites is a great one. But for our listeners, could you talk a little bit about that and how, because of anthropomorphism projecting, 
that's why we can still see God authentically revealed Christ, even in the midst of what looks like uh, very non-Christ-like behavior. Can you talk about that for a couple of minutes? Sure. Um, so for those who don't know this word, anthropomorphism is when you is when you apply a human characteristic to something that is not human. That's a very basic sense. So when the psalmist says that the trees clap their hands, we're like, well, trees don't have hands. And so to say the trees clap their hands, David's not an idiot. He knows he's doing poetry. But wait a minute. A the Bible says trees clap their hands. They must have had hands back then. So yes. I, I well, resist. <laughs> so, so, but that's a good example where even the author knows what he's doing. You know, poetry is a genre. It's a beautiful expression, right? But then um, we also project human characteristics onto God. And it's not empty or worthless. We're communicating something. So, for example, when in Isaiah, God, it says that God stretches out his arm. He, he rolls up his sleeve and he stretches out his arm to save. The arms of the Lord are not too short to save, are they? Well, but God is spirit, so we know he didn't literally have arms. But we're using the word arms. There is a metaphor for God's action in this world. When it says his arms aren't too, you know, short to save, it, mean, it means his mercy has infinite reach, right? So it's good to use anthropomorphisms to communicate these kind of things, and it can help us. Um, sometimes, though, uh, these anthropomorphisms, they're so expressive that to take them literally would not be true. Like, so, for example, when, we're, when Isaiah is praying, sort of that, or the prophets pray that the Lord would would be would arouse himself in others literally literally if you take it literally wake up wait a minute we already know that he doesn't sleep god never sleeps and so if 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 you said that god literally woke up implying that he literally slept you'd be in trouble right and and of, and and in you would just say well that's ridiculous of course he doesn't it's expressing something we're asking him to move where we don't see him moving, even if he is moving. Ah, so now it's connected to what I'm seeing, my perspective on God's action or inaction, and I'm applying that and, and extending it on, onto God as if that were the case. Well, what happens then um, when you come to certain anthropomorphisms that not only if you applied them literally to God, would not be true. They would also make God evil. And so all of the early church fathers seem to have known this, seen this, and major the major ones in both the East and West taught it. And they said, look at when we sin, when we defy God and something bad happens, something even violent happens, um, We'll call that God's wrath. There's actually the effects of sin. But because we defy God, we're, gonna, we're going to project that onto God as violent anger. The word for that is wrath. Wrath literally means violent anger. Anger that harms. And so, so um, 
it's possible that some of the ancients literally thought God or actually thought God was violently harming them for their sins. But already by the prophets, they know it's actually their sin that's doing it. It's like I defied God when he said, don't make a covenant with with Egypt, because if you do, Babylon will come and destroy you. They defy God, make the covenant with Egypt. Babylon comes and destroys them. They're like, well, that was the wrath of God. It's like, well, not literally. It's our sin was the cause. And Babylon was the agent of destruction. Where is God in that? Well, only that he gave a warning. So, um, uh, happily, um, that the early church saw this uh, as an anthropomorphism. It is, and the, and so they would say things like John Cassian, for example, would say, "If you literalize the anger of God, you will create an idol." And commit a monstrous blasphemy. And um, and he and others like him will go on to say, you know, this is about your perspective. This is about you, you're projecting your own fears onto him. And you need to you need to remember God is love. And that whatever you thought was wrath is actually more associated with Satan than it was with God, whatever Satan is. But for the Jews, even before the time of Christ, they they had concluded that the wrath is a synonym for Satan, not an attribute of God. So this was solved a long time ago, but guess what? <laughs> Modernist literalists brought it back into the picture and just um, are making an error that their first Christians had already solved. So if you'll permit me, Brad, let me let me ask another for instance Um I just finished mm-hmm. the book of Ezekiel, uh, and I was reading it, having, you know, you and I have been friends for several years, and you've completely uh, challenged my thinking on a lot of ways. And so every time I, I approach these Old Testament scriptures, uh, I approach them a little bit differently than the time before. And currently reading your book and reading Ezekiel is uh, fun, challenging, a little difficult. Um I'm, I read through chapter 35, and I, I get to things like this. Um, as surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, since you show no distaste for blood, I will give you a bloodbath of your own. Your turn has come. I will make Mount Seir utterly desolate, killing off all who try to escape, and any who return, I will fill your mountains with the dead, yada, yada, yada. We've, we know the deal. Uh, so... I. I will admit, I'm reading that, and I'm like, mm, I think that's Ezekiel projecting onto God some uh, some of his own uh, angst, perhaps, about his enemies and things like that. So I'm, in a sense, uh, just being fully transparent, I think, in a very simplistic way, almost kind of discarding or setting aside these things as, hey, this does not, even though it says, the Sovereign Lord says this, I'm thinking... Perhaps not. Uh, perhaps that is not a fair representation of a Christ-like God, um, as as according to the Christ that's been revealed to us in the Gospels. But then I get to chapter thirty-six, and we get this wonderful passage of, uh, you know, uh, I will sprinkle sprinkle clean water on you; you will be clean. Uh, your filth will be washed away. I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you, take away your stony, stubborn heart, and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I, you know, it's highlighted in my Bible. I was, you know, clearly like, yes, this I can resonate with. And then I suddenly thought to myself, well, what, am I cherry picking? Like, th- isn't this 
isn't there a danger in being like, well, I'll believe certain parts of the Bible, but I'm not going to believe the other parts that I don't like? Uh, and is that a dangerous path to go on? And how, is there a better way of going about this? What's, how can we navigate this type of struggle that I'm going through right now? Geez, I never saw that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> um, but it's it's an incredibly valid question, one that comes up a lot. So <clears throat> the first, and, and you actually did this in a sense yourself in a positive way. It's like you have no business in Ezekiel without Jesus. You're not a you're not a Jew, Tim. Um, there are Jews who think that they can enter the Old Testament texts without Jesus and understand God's heart. And Paul says, Paul, a Jew, says, no, you can't. There are Christian scholars who think we can read Ezekiel like the Jews do without reference to Jesus. And we can determine the authorial intent and what the Spirit was inspired to reveal to us without reference to the gospel. No, you can't. I'm like, I guess you can, but you don't call that a Christian reading of Ezekiel then, right? So, so it, um, now here's what the Jews have taught us. You don't enter Ezekiel at all without a rabbi, hmm. and we have one. So this is, what I, this is the genius of Judaism. You don't enter into a book like Ezekiel without a rabbi, and you don't enter into a book like Ezekiel without a community, without a quorum. Um, they call it a minion. And so the, 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 I think this is a part of the problem. We lost our Jewish sense of how to read as community with a rabbi. And then we lost our Christian sense that Jesus is that rabbi. And the church is our community. We're just so radically individualistic in a way that's that, that's neither Jewish nor Christian. But anyway, um, so now let's so let's say let's say we do enter then a book like Ezekiel with Jesus. It's not cherry picking if we don't throw none of it out. So I'm not going to throw any of it out. Um, rather than because cherry picking sort of implies I'm going to pick some and ignore others. I would call it entering with Christian discernment would be entering with Jesus and, and saying, where's Jesus in this chapter? Where's Jesus in the next chapter? How does this all work? So um, what you won't be able to do then is just read it as a flat text. Literally we and, and now even just to make a caveat on what I just said, um, Jesus cherry-picked all the time because he saw which texts more clearly um, pointed to him. And he saw which texts that he needed to say, you've heard it said, but I'm telling you. Paul's the same way. He's like, he cherry picks all the time. Sometimes he will, he will just take passages, even passages that were, let's say, pro-exclusion, and he'll flip them on their heads and use phrases from them to build an argument that's pro-inclusion. So, so you do see, well, it's that cherry picking. No, it's reading through the lens of the gospel. 
All right, now back to Ezekiel. Um, were the dire prophecies of God fulfilled there? Is this what was going to happen and did happen? We think it is what happened and that God, is, God has warned them. Uh, and then in the next chapter, what God does is he says, you know, after these things happen, after this terrible bloodbath that will be the result of your rebellion, I'm going to do a, a renewing work. I'm going to recreate things. I'm going to give you refreshing. I'm going to restore what was broken. And now we would say, all right, how does this prefigure Jesus? And here's the weird thing. Instead, a New Testament reading of Ezekiel 34 and 35 um, is, is not God caused the harm, then God caused the redemption. The New Testament reading is, actually, it's the thief who stealed, killed, and destroyed. And it's actually I who come that you would have life. That doesn't mean you remove the dire warnings. You want to, dis you want to determine where destruction is coming from. But what, what the revelation of God in Christ does is it, 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 it lets us know that God was actually not the cause. God is not the agent of the destruction. Yeah. Sin was. And so then the, the negative passage becomes a cautionary warning, um, not only of the powerful destruction that comes from defying love, but also it's a cautionary warning of projecting that onto God. And that really now we go back into Ezekiel and say, now, where is Jesus in this passage? Oh, there he is. He's all over that second chapter. Does that kind of cover it, Tim, or am I missing something? It does, and you, you've touched on something, and I'm really glad you did, because actually, and a, a listener has just typed in a question regarding this, and it's wild, because I literally just finished having this conversation uh, that uh, with, with my wife this morning, which is the Old Testament's understanding of... Uh, who the enemy really was. Uh, you know, I was reading Joel this morning, and uh, he's talking about, you know, uh, we're going to go get all the nations, all these bad guys, God's going to take them out. Uh, and I, I said to Bethany, my wife, I said, you know, I, I think that they misunderstood who the real enemy was. And in Christ, we have, uh, we begin to get this understanding of, oh, it's the principalities and powers. Like, we have a real enemy. It's the, it's the thief who comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And John's asked this question here, and I'll put it to you, which is, uh, is part of the issue that the Old Testament writers didn't distinguish God from Satan? Um, and that, that comes from something you'd said a few minutes ago, but whereby there, there isn't a clear <laughs> delineation as who is the bad guy here? Yeah, I want to nuance that a little bit more than the question. It's not an either or Old Testament, New Testament thing. It is an ongoing development mm -hmm. that you can see on the pages of the Old Testament even, even, even just on the Old Testament, but it does extend. And here's the development, God's relationship to wrath. So if wrath is the consequences of sin that leads to destruction, that's a good way to say it, wrath, just wrath. Wrath is the consequences of sin that leads to destruction. The developing theology among the people of God in the Bible is, a, is how God relates to wrath. So it goes in stages. I can do it quickly. First stage, God is the wrath. He directly 
destroys or punishes sin. Then they get uncomfortable with that because they realize wrath, which is to say violent anger. That's the definition um, of the actual literal word. It's one of the seven deadly sins. <laughs> so uh, the, the Jewish authors are already having a problem. They're like, like, God can't be directly wrathful because that's not holy. It's why David was not allowed to build the temple. Hmm. So how can God have blood on his hands if David yeah. can't? And still call them holy. So the, their initial solution to that is God do, doesn't directly wrath you, but he sends the wrather, which is the destroyer, which is kind of his hitman, so that God's not guilty. <laughs> well, we know that doesn't hold up in court anymore, right? That's a Godfather thing. And then, so then they move from there. They're like, well, okay, he doesn't directly send the wrath, but he will give you over to it. So now he's not, at one time they thought God was destroying them. Then they thought, okay, God's destroying them by sending Babylon. Okay. Now God's destroying them by giving them over to Babylon. And it's really Babylon. Sin is the cause and Babylon's the agent. God is just allowing it. He's, he consents to the consequences of our defiance. And that's true. But it's not the end of the story. The good news is, already in the Old Testament, Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 18, God will send the Messiah to overcome the wrath and destroy the destroyer. Whoa, that's a good that's good news. Too bad the Protestants took it out of their Bibles in 1500 or so. But it's it's it was in Jesus' Bible. It was in Jesus' Bible, informing him, informing Paul um, that the wrath is actually among Jews, even before the incarnation, had come to be a synonym for Satan. So there you go. You have this fourfold move from God the wrather to Satan the wrather, and that, that God would overcome the wrather by sending his Messiah. And then you get John 10.10. 10. It's, it's the thief who steals, kills, and destroys. It's not God that's the destroyer. It's the thief. I'm the life giver. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, it just tells you Abaddon, the destroyer, comes out of the pit of hell. That's the source of wrath. And so that's quite a move across the Bible, but it's a beautiful arc. The problem is they didn't write the Bible chronologically. So sometimes in one chapter, you'll get three different perspectives. God kills the firstborn. Well, actually, God sends the destroyer to kill the firstborn. Oh, actually, God puts has you put the blood on the doors to protect you from God's the protector from from the destroyer. It's just it doesn't come clear until the death and resurrection of Jesus unveils it on the road to Emmaus. Indeed. You have just touched on the Exodus story, and I have a very specific question on that that I want to come back to, but I also want to honor the fact that uh, we have had uh, some viewers writing in questions and stuff, so I'm going to fire off a couple of those real quick. Uh, uh, This one from Phil. says, Brad, would you agree with the rabbinic method of pardes, is what he's he's written here, which has different levels of interpretation of the scriptures from liberal... Uh, sorry, from literal and plain to allegorical and hidden, etc. Yeah, absolutely. I, I I think we see that reflected in the in in the teachings of Jesus, for example. So and and then and then you will see that these layers come out in in the early 
in the second century already, third century, fourth century, second, and by the end of the second century, they, and I think they're riffing off of Philo and some of the other rabbis, where there's a literal sense, a moral sense, and a spiritual sense under different names. But I, I think it's worth sharing those. So for the early church, for Jesus, um, and I'll give one example. Um, you begin with the with, with literal sense, which isn't literalism. So the modernists did literalism. That is, you, you ignore genre, you ignore figures. So you, you take some kind of strange literal sense of the words. And, and No, no. Literal for the early church meant authorial intent. What is the author intending through his use of genre, his use of language and grammar, the words he uses, uh, literal meant seeing poetry as poetry, myth as myth, fiction as fiction, parables as parable, and so on. So in a literal but not literalistic sense, you start with the author's intent in those ways. And that's only the first sense. So they would say, that's like the orange peel. <laughs> To, to walk away having eaten just the orange peel, you've missed the heart, the flesh of the message. So you must proceed from there. Once you've done your hard work, figuring out what do these words mean? How is it used in historical context? What is the genre I'm faced with? We move to the moral sense. And the moral sense is not moralistic. <laughs> moral, not literalistic and not moralistic. Moralistic would mean um, this is basically all a law book and how to live, and, and you need to obey this to please God or whatever, and, and that's just very moralistic. But the moral sense is what Paul was talking about to, the, to Timothy. How does any given scripture shape my discipleship? How do I read this in a way that would make me more Christ-like? And, and, and so... Um, one way would be to say, look at, whereas, whereas Samuel said to Saul, God wants obedience, not sacrifice. Go kill without mercy. Jesus says, go read what these mean. this means. I want mercy, not sacrifice. And so, oh, okay, now I'm going to read with that kind of intention. The, uh, the moral sense of scripture is, is all about transfiguring me from glory to glory into the image of Jesus, showing me the Jesus way, walking in it, following in it. That's the moral sense. And then finally, you're not done yet. <laughs> in fact, you've not yet read it as gospel until you get to the spiritual sense, which some sometimes we might call the typological sense or, um, or, or even an allegorical sense for that matter, where we're saying, how does this story, how does this text point to the gospel? How is it the gospel? Quick example, book of Jonah, literal sense, is not about whether there's a fish big enough to swallow a man and hold him for three days. <laughs> the literal sense is what is the author's message when he tells the story of Jonah? It seems to be that God loves the world and not just your tribe. That seems to be the literal sense. The author had that in mind. Okay, second, what's the moral sense? Very similar, but now we're asking, how does this shape my discipleship? So when we were when we were planning to go off to uh, uh, attack Iraq uh, after 9-11, VeggieTales puts out the movie uh, about the story of Jonah. 
And the moral sense there would have been, are we going to, what are we going to do? Are we going to run into Iraq with rockets? Or um, are we going to remember that this is the Nineveh that Jesus overturned, not with violence, but with grace? How could we be like Jesus in that, right? And we absolutely missed the moral sense, even when it was on our movie screens and proceeded to do what we chose to do. Um, and, and that was really, really tragic. Um, and death dealing, that was the thief that steals, kills, and destroys. In fact, the fact that it was done in the name of Jesus' name in some cases is just blasphemous. Mm. And then finally, Though Jesus doesn't stop there. When G, what is Jesus' use of Jonah? He sees himself there. As the sign of Jonah is that is, is that as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth for three days and three nights, and then he will rise again. In other words, what the author, the literal sense, and even the moral sense could not see until after the resurrection was this spiritual sense, the allegorical sense, or the typological sense, that the resurrection itself, when Paul says he rose again according to the scriptures, he's talking about Jonah and many other passages. Because what does Jonah sing in the belly of the whale? There's a poem. He, his prayer from the belly is a poem that he has been brought down, not just into the depths of the sea, but to the hearts of the earth and even into the lower part the Hades and the, or the pit and that God has rescued him from the pit. This is the sign of Jonah that points to Jesus. So that'd be an example of, uh, and this really does as the, as the person asking was saying, it, it really does reflect uh, a layered reading that you get in Judaism prior, even to the new Testament era. Hmm. Thank you. Um, Really quick, uh, Connie's asked, she said, I'd love to hear Brad's take on the Jesus Seminar, which is not something I'm familiar with, but uh, do you know the Jesus Seminar? Yeah, it's it's sloppy. I mean, it's it's all the wrong premises. The Jesus Seminar was, was a group of liberal scholars that they go to the four gospels and then and then they vote on how likely each paragraph is to have been authentic. Um, which parts are very likely from the authentic Jesus tradition, which are possibly part of the authentic Jesus tradition, and which parts are definitely not part of the authentic Jesus tradition. They're just brought in after the fact. Well, I mean, the whole premise is wrong. Uh, what we have, first of all, here's the premise, and it's the same modernist premise as the inerrantists, who said that the most authentic version is going to be the earliest layer of the text. Well, no, that's not how it works. How it works is, what is the final form of the text that includes not only history, but theological reflection that we have come to receive as an authoritative witness to the gospel? In other words, I don't care what the first layer of writing was, and I don't even need the four gospels always to align perfectly with a handheld camera. You know, these are theological books. Um, and so one example of that would be, um, they, you know, maybe the Jesus Seminar. Uh, um, and by the way, probably the best response to that is N.T. Wright's work. He just 
but he, even there, and he Wright is getting into his, you know, it's history of Jesus. I'm like, it's not just about history. These gospels are theological reflections based in their eyes being opened after the resurrection on, on the Emmaus way to see how um, the meaning of Christ's life, death, and resurrection is prefigured in the Old Testament. So anyway, I, yeah, I, I have a fairly negative view of the Jesus seminar because it, it just asks all the wrong questions. And then what it basically does is it leaves you with a chopped up set of Bible verses that are very narrow. Um, and, and it also assumes very late writings for books that every bit of evidence is pushing our understanding that these are early witnesses earlier than we had even thought. All right. Uh, have you got a few more minutes, by the way? I forgot to ask you how much time you have, and you're a busy guy. Uh, earlier this morning, you were in uh, Brazil uh, doing. A- I have till I have till noon PST. I so I, I have I have another I have half an hour or forty minutes if you need it. Awesome. I, people right. will be bored by then, but <laughs> well, I'm not bored. Uh, so I do have at least two more uh, very specific questions. I need to check Facebook too and see if there's questions coming in there because I've only got YouTube in front of me. But um, and if you do have a few more questions, by the way, we're trying to keep up on those. So uh, write them down there and we'll ask Brad. But you mentioned the Exodus story a few minutes ago. You alluded to that. Um, the passages I read from Ezekiel, Ezekiel 35, were. Clearly, that's that's prophetic. That it's a different genre. Uh, you know, you skip to thirty-seven, and I don't think anybody believes there was actually a valley of dry bones that actually got flesh on and and breath in their lungs and things like that. We understand those to be uh, metaphorical in nature. It's a different genre. But when I read oh, the Exodus, yeah, let, let me jump in there just for a moment. That's an incredible example too, of of the authorial intent of, of the dry Valley of Dry Bones was all about the, re- the restoration of exiled Israel. Mm-hmm. But it's fulfilled finally in the resurrection of all the dead in Christ. So there's a there's a Christological thing there that, that probably Ezekiel had no clue about, yeah. um, but, but it's unveiled in Jesus. Anyway, that, it was too juicy to leave. That's of the Holy Spirit right there. I love that. Yeah, uh, yeah. All right, so different genre though. We've got the Exodus story, and we've got you know one of the best told stories in uh, in children's Sunday schools and such. In terms of you've got the plagues uh, finally culminating in the death of the firstborn of every family uh, in Egypt, uh, except those of the the Hebrew nation that put the blood over the doorposts, uh, and then. You know, a few days later, they cross the Red Sea, the great parting of the Red Sea, and then the Red Sea collapses on uh, Pharaoh's army. We've got a lot of death in there. Uh, my friend Randeep wrote on Facebook a few minutes ago, you know, why is the the God that we see in the Old Testament, if God is love, how come we don't see much of that God is love in the Old Testament? This is a great example of like, ah, how does a loving God behave so violently to wipe out so many humans? Um, how do we How do we read that story? How do we square that circle of, hey, God is love, but he just wiped out a whole lot of people? Yeah, so first of all, um, first of all, I'd probably challenge the idea of, I, I want to just say, it's like not, it's not Old Testament God, bad, <laughs> evil, wicked, violent, deathly, New Testament God, uh, sunshine and roses. It's, it's like, there is a, 
there is a sense of of God that um, continually gets revealed um, at key moments. So, for example, when Moses wants to see the glory of God and he's allowed to see God's backside, what what he finds out is that the I am is. I am gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. You come to David, he's a he's a barbarian. He's like he's like Conan, but then what is what's revealed to him? Psalm 103. Um, that God is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And you come to uh, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. And then you get this in books like Hosea and through the prophets. It's like in spite of all the bloodshed. Um, that results from our own sin. Here's a God who has good news that forgives you even before you repent. Mm. And he remembers when you were a child and he says, my heart is turned within me. I will not do this to you. So I want to say, um, and I got this from my spiritual director, Steve Stewart. He, he challenged me because I was using old Testament God language a lot. Steve Stewart. I, I meant, um, um, a different guy, yeah, no, but we're going to leave it at Steve. We're going to leave it, at Steve. Uh, his name's Steve, though, too. And so, Imbach. Um, so, Steve Imbach, he was challenging me on this. He's like, What's with all this Old Testament God language? Is like, have you, do you not remember how the Old Testament is permeated with the love of God and the mercies of God? His mercies endure forever, His love and kindness is everlasting. Um, and and that that's the glory that will you know so anyway i just wanted to make that caveat now we come to the story of the exodus um we we might want we we might want to be a bit agnostic about when it was written how, how it was written and why it was written and even like hold with an open hand um, how to treat the story that the narrator is presenting us because it does look very, you, you, you do have, you do have the ravages of these plagues happen. Um, But again, you don't get to come to the story without Jesus. So what does Jesus say? It's the, Thief who steals, kills, and destroys. I come that you'd have life. What does wisdom of Solomon say? That that destroyer that kills the firstborn, that the Messiah is coming to destroy the, overcome the wrath, destroy the destroyer. And so even within the Exodus narrative, then now we have to start asking ourselves, um, what, what was the cause of the plagues? And who is the agent of the plagues? And where... Is, is God revealed in them? When you break it down a little bit that way, you can say, okay, the various narrators who've come together to tell this story, because it's more than one narrator for sure. If you've got some saying God's the cause, others saying the destroyer's the cause, and others saying that that uh, God's God's place in this story is as the redeemer. Then I can I can say okay what is a Christian reading you you've heard it said that God killed those babies but I'm telling you uh, sin was the cause of those plagues hardness of heart was the cause of those plagues um, who's the agent 
of those plagues. Is it God? No, it's the destroyer. Okay. So through hardness of heart, the destroyer takes, uh, the destroyer brings this series of plagues. Um, and, and where is, where is Christ in the story? Cause guess what? God only appears as Christ in the old Testament, the appearances of God, remember God's invisible. So when he appears, it's the word. Where do we see the word? Well, we see the word is we see him in the lamb. We see him, the door and the blood post. We see, we see him protecting those who've smeared their blood posts with, with, with uh, the lamb's blood and so on. And so you're, you're like, well, but now you're not reading it literally. It's like, exactly. I'm reading it Christianly. Um, but I'm also going to read it from 3,000 feet up. This is the story of redemption. And this becomes the archetype for the redemption of all humanity. And we're still pouring out plagues. We are the bowls of wrath. We fill them up with carbon dioxide, and we pour them out as climate change. We pour them out. We fill them up with war, and we pour them out as famine. We fill them up with deforestation and pour them out as floods in Bangladesh. You know that. So, just, so now I'm reading those plagues as a realist, not a literalist, but a realist. Pharaoh's hardness of heart caused those plagues, and the agent of those plagues was not the life-giving savior. The life-giving savior is there as redeemer, and he's saying, "I can even turn your sin on its head into." the liberation of an entire people group. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> now, what if we take our sin, the sin of deicide, where we crucify the son of God, and it's absolutely evil. And in fact, may even trigger a series of events that leads to the destruction of Jerusalem. Where is God in that? God is turning our defiance, our wickedness, our violence on its head for the redemption of all people. But the very fact that we call it redemption comes from the Exodus story. And uh, that, I would say that that would be a more Christian read, a more Christ-like reading of, the, of those events where Christ does correct the perspectives of the narrators. A follow-up question, and that came in partway through, as you said that. Uh, so I will, I will ask it. Though perhaps you've addressed it, but uh, what does that actually mean, though? Like you said, "quote Sin was the cause of the plagues," um, and perhaps a literalism reading of that would tell me that God was the cause of the plagues, because God's saying Moses. I guess God through Moses is saying, "Hey, either your heart needs to soften, or." God is going to do these things. I mean, sin isn't a person. Like who actually came and killed the firstborn, or or the the nine preceding plagues, or yeah, or the the frogs and the locusts and yeah, the, which which are the, more general in terms of relating exactly to what you said, Brad, of what. We're reaping what we've sown. Mm -hmm. It's it's in all our news every day now. Climate change. So yeah. so those nine plagues. That was what I was going to ask too, because ultimately, God sent Moses. Said Moses, go tell Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. You need to repent, 
or there's frogs, boils, locusts, etc. So who brought the... To where the frogs come from. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm, I mean, you could, you could do this in the... In, the the narrator is is connecting dots mm. right Good. he's connecting dots for us that include invisible stages it's the very same question i would ask if i would say why does me driving to what does me driving to work in the morning have to do with a heat dome <laughs> right <laughs> Um, so there's, I'm, you, you have to connect some invisible dots. There's just, there's nothing I can see that is a direct link that between me pressing the, um, on button in my Honda and the thermometer outside my window. But so science tries to fill in those blanks for us. And in fact, some of that we found out over time that sometimes science builds conjecture that happens to not be the case. Um, David Suzuki, our great environmentalist, he, he, he prophesied that if, if we didn't do this, we'd start an ice age. <laughs> so he had the outcomes kind of backwards. Uh, maybe we still will, who knows? But it looks more like melting to me. So now I go back into that story and I'm like, well, the narrator, the narrator is connecting hardness of heart, sin on Pharaoh's part, mm with these 10 plagues. Um, where did the plagues come from? How do they connect to that hardness of heart? So the narrator infers that, that God set the plagues. And then another narrator says, well, no, not actually. Uh, a destroyer sent those plagues. Like, well, who's the destroyer? He's invisible too. Hmm. So all we can do really is to say, whether there are natural or supernatural consequences, the author is darkness leading to death. Very good. Thank you. Not light leading to life. That, that'd be a good way to do it. And how do I know that? Because of Jesus. Mm, yeah. um, but even, even in the Psalms, I, I chant this Psalm, I think, just about every week. It's in the Psalter. Uh, which is our translation of the Psalms we use. And I don't think it's in our Protestant translations because it depends how you translate it. It actually, it has the Psalmist saying that the death of sinners is evil. The death of, so it's not unlike Miriam, who is rejoicing in the death of those who died in the flood. There's a lament in the Psalms, even over that, when someone commits a sin and it leads to consequences that leading to death, that's not good. <laughs> that does not bring God glory. It's actually evil. It's evil that that person died in their sins. And um, I just want to connect this very quickly to like, if someone, for whatever reason, and there's going to be reasons. But if someone, for whatever reason, has, has a meth addiction, and then that meth addiction leads to an overdose that results in death, for me to say, it, for, for me to say that God caused that death is, is, is more apparently wrong to me, right? He, 
the meth caused the death. And, and uh, maybe the reason, maybe the sin that caused the, the wound that caused the addiction that caused the overdose led to death. And maybe that initial sin wasn't even committed by the meth addict. Maybe it was an uncle who abused her, something like that, right? And so now we just, so I, I just want to bring that to these stories and, and say, like, when the outcome is destruction, even when the text seems to assign that destruction to the hand of God, Jesus came and he said, that's not how it works. John 10, 10, that's not how it works. And, and, um, and, and then we say, okay, well then look for the life giver, look for the liberator. Very good. Yeah. Very good. Mm. You know, I, I'm going to be real quick in no time, but I want to interject something. Brad, you know that at the, <laughs> Up until COVID, I spent a lot of time in villages in different countries telling them about Christ. And you know that John 10.10 is like a focal point for my evangelism. I want to make two points. Number one, when I reveal to them, it's not God that's bringing you poverty and sickness and conflict in your home, etc., etc., etc. It is the thief, John 10.10, 10, right? There's this, I watch it. As I describe the thief's activity, I just see their faces just get dark and sad. And then when I say, but you know what? That was the thief. That's not God. Jesus came, abundant life. That's one thing. So I just wanted to apply that. The second thing is, as recently as a couple of days ago, I get people writing me, Christians, God-fearing people, who, who have a worldview that God uses sickness and pain to teach them a lesson, to correct them, etc. And that again and again, both in the developing world and right here in the West, I have to say, no, God is good. God is love. It's the enemy who brings that stuff. Um, and I, I, I don't want to go on and on because I know that if you get cancer, it's got something to do with 30 years of smoking cigarettes. I know that. But in terms of what you're saying, uh, it has a real application. Um, you know, what, what we've talked about, you've talked about for the last number of minutes in terms of God in the Old Testament even though he's not a different God from the New Testament. Um, but what you, has absolute implications in my world, uh, evangelism, healing, etc., um, all I'm doing is underlining what you're saying. This has got direct consequences in, in the, the Christian church's worldview. What you believe about the king will determine the way you live your life is something I often say. Hmm. And you're helping us today. Because uh, it's so important what you believe about the king. Follow-up question. James says the Lord disciplines those he loves. F- fit that into what you've just said in terms of that worldview, because I think that's partly where that worldview comes. Of like, oh, bad things are happening, I must be getting disciplined. Uh, what does discipline look like in the kingdom? For me, it goes back to Romans 8.28, that, that uh, there are... Um, there's consequences, mm-hmm. but if our, as our heart is turned to Jesus, he uses those disciplines of James uh, 
to bring us more and more toward what, Brad, you said, 2 Corinthians 3, that we are being transfigured from glory to glory. So that's my short answer, because I'd rather have people hear from Brad than me. <laughs> Brad? Yeah, the, the most... I, the, the most I would want to say, like in terms of uses, right, is not sends. He co-opts even the 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 murder of his son for our redemption. That doesn't let us off the hook for murdering his son. And so, in the same way, it's like I I don't believe that God sent the prodigal son into the pig pen. But he co-ops the smells of the pig pen to remind him of the aromas of the banqueting table. Um, and so the, I hear this a lot from a, uh, addicts. They are grateful for their addiction because it's, it was part of how God saved them from self-will, which was leading them to destruction. And it's not that God sent the addiction. It's that God co-opted the addictions yes. to bring them into a much bigger recovery than abstinence. And that is the love of God, you know? So I want to say this too, about like, if you think about a lot of the kind of what about questions mm -hmm. um, now, I didn't hear that from your questioners and I know their hearts. So I, please don't have me poking my finger, see me accusing here, but I would say a lot of times our, what about questions are a concern that somehow we're, if we don't read the Bible, literally we're being unfaithful readers and in fact, we would rather throw God's character under the bus than let go of our literalist hermeneutic. Well, that's and it, it's like so a faithful reading of scripture, a faithful reading will will always point to a Christ-like God. And that we're never attacking scripture on these things, we're reading it more carefully. So that our hermeneutic isn't blaspheming the kindest person we've ever met. So the Bible's not the problem. It's, it's, just a, it's just fairly shallow literalist readings that actually have sent people off into atheism. Um, so that's kind of, I want to be a faithful reader. And, and, uh, and, and so sometimes when we question the literalist layer, <laughs> People think we're about to throw our Bibles out. It's like, oh my goodness, no. Have Steve and I and Tim, we've never, we've never been this deep into the scriptures in our whole life. And we're we're more enthralled with their witness to the word than we've ever been. Yes. For sure. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. True. There's a really good question here, Brad, uh, from Trina. She's asking which resources would you recommend for adolescents to teach them about this view? Uh, more in depth than your children's books, because I know you've read some children's, written some children's books on this stuff, but um, more in depth than the children's books, but um, perhaps not quite as deep for those who might have trouble with the, the level of reading from a more Christ-like word. Do you have some resources you can recommend for, for adolescents or those who are maybe just beginning to explore this topic? Um, I'm I'm only a little nervous to do this, but okay. um, because I've not seen it. But someone recently told me that Pete Enns, who wrote the foreword to my book, mm -hmm. um, has tried to create some children's level curriculum. And I've, like I say, I've not seen it, but but I trust Pete. So it'd be interesting to see how how that looks and I don't have a link or even a name for it, but could probably Google Pete ends and 
Bible and children's curriculum or something like that, or just reach out to him directly. Yeah. Um, another question has come in, uh, the topic of uh, LGD, LGBTQ, um, same-sex marriage, is there room for uh, a more a progression beyond the, the traditional view of what's stated in the Bible on this? Well, I'm not sure anything's stated in the Bible on it. And, and by the way, I mean, that's something you touch on beautifully in your book, that whole, well, as the Bible clearly says, uh, you you kind of red flag that phrase uh, <laughs> very well. Yeah, I will say, I, I, I will say it this way, that if we were to try to come up with a, uh, a biblical uh, set of statements about what does the Bible say about homosexuality, we would often be reading a few texts that have retranslated the words into homosexuality that, that it was not translated that way at one time. And, and, and that those texts have contexts ranging from life in the wilderness to life in Rome, where um, uh, pederasty was common, like uh, slave owners would abuse their same sex underage and brag about it. Right. So it's just not, I just don't see any conversation about two people who are in love. What I would say then is that we do have a sex ethic. It's, we certainly don't have a consistent biblical definition of marriage um, that we'd want, because then you're inviting all sorts of polygamy and laws requiring you to marry your sister-in-law after she's widowed and stuff like that. <laughs> but but we have some principles that I think are important so that we don't say anything goes. Mm -hmm. And I would apply this to LGBTQ people, but also to heterosexuals who are married, that our sexuality, for it to be Christ-like, will be relational, not hookups, right? Not, not um, and it'll be responsible. It's not going to be. Uh, promiscuous. It's not going to be without regard to the other. It's going to be respectful. It won't involve exploitation. It won't involve coercion, certainly. And, and I, I, I actually learned those three sex ethics from the LGBTQ affirming church. And they have to teach that. Otherwise, they're dealing with a big mess, you know? So, but when I heard them, I'm like, geez, the stories I've heard through the years, that's a high bar for heterosexual marriage. I know all sorts of violations of that within straight marriage, the straight marriage bed. And in fact, maybe I'd better get the plank out of my own eye <laughs> um, before worrying about who I'm going to police in their bedrooms. I will add one thing. I've written an article about this online, if, if people are interested on just a bit of my journey with it and how I read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which doesn't mention LGBTQ plus issues at all, but it does talk a lot about marriage and sexuality, where Paul gives us a series of scenarios. And in each scenario, he sort of gives us his canon law, which would be, here's the default mode. Remain as you are. If you're single, remain single. If you're married, remain married. If you're divorced, remain divorced. If you're a widow, remain a widow, etc. And then for each of these ideals, he gives what sounds like a concession. But if you don't, okay. But if you don't, okay. But if you don't, okay. 
one in one case, he even says, if you don't, it's not a sin. But I don't believe they're just concessions. I believe what he's doing is something with law and grace there. And so, for example, whereas a literalist read of Jesus would make divorce and remarriage almost a never. We've got all sorts of conservative Christians now are divorced and remarried. What does Paul say to that? It's like, where there's divorce and remarriage, there's also grace. And so there's a, in each of these cases, I would say there's a redemptive path forward, even when we fail in what we thought was the ideal. I wonder if that could be applied to people who are like, look at it, if, if, if you're going to get married, marry someone of the opposite sex. But if your sexual attraction is to someone of the same sex, don't get married. But if you do, you know, and, and just say, is there a redemptive path for everyone we meet? Or is it just like the law or nothing? Um, so that that's uh, I don't want to create a hubbub among your among your donors, but like I'm giving a personal perspective on that since you asked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm watching the time, Brad, and I'm aware that you probably need a little bit of rest before you get on to your next thing. Uh, this has been so rich. Uh, and I, I apologize to those who had additional questions in there. They've been coming in fast and furious. Uh, we've done our best to keep up, but I think we need to call it. Uh, just a reminder again, bradjerzak.com. You can see all of Brad's books there. Uh, certainly they're all available on Amazon as well. Um, Please tune into the Impact Nations podcast. We love having these discussions. We love having questions from our listeners and stuff. So um, join us. uh, As I said, usually we're here Thursdays um, at 3 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, And head to impactnations.com. Check out what we're doing around the world, uh, seeing the kingdom of God come and transform lives. One of the things that's so important uh, is that we make sure we're putting these things into action. You know, we can can sit around and, and debate um, scripture all day long, but if we're not allowing it to actually change the way we uh, bring the gospel to a broken world, then we're just playing games. So uh, we try to do that in Impact Nations. We're having a heck of a lot of fun doing it. Uh, we're seeing lives completely changed by the gospel, uh, again, through practical demonstrations of the gospel, through preaching of the gospel, through healing of the sick, all those things. Uh, be sure to follow us on Facebook uh, so you can see those stories. We're posting stories about that sort of thing all the time. Yeah. Um, Brad, is there anything else that you wanted to point uh, our listeners or viewers to? Um, yes, one thing, and that just riffing off what you said, um, we will not get past the literalist reading unless unless this stuff is happening on the ground, just exactly as you said it. And it brings it around again to this this question of you know when I read the scriptures and I see how different the church in Acts was, even in its own brokenness, from who we've become today, which is ver- in many cases. Uh, overtly heretical. <laughs> One of the heresies would be that I can I can just go off and study my Bible and that will be my piety. And it's like, no, we've we've been given a commission. And if you want to be involved in in um in a group that I trust and I know are good stewards of whatever funding we've got available on the ground. Um, uh, 
then I, I commend you to Impact Nations. I've got there's a couple of groups I support, and this is one of them. And it's because I know the people and I've watched them long term. And uh, what's particularly wonderful to me is that they have the whole range from clean water to opening blind eyes, and they never exploit that um, in, in in some kind of showy way. And so, um, if anybody has a, a spare twenty bucks today or more. Um, you could do a donate right now. And they didn't ask me to make this plug. It's that I believe in it so strongly that we're seeing the kingdom of God advance as light in, a, in the most desperate places that are proof to me. They, they are confirmation of, of the words of Jesus. Hmm. So well done, guys. Keep it up. Thank you. Hey, a quick story. Just, just a fun thing. One of the amazing things is uh, seeing the kingdom of God uh, being demonstrated in this era, uh, in a time when the world has actually become so much smaller. Uh, I got a phone call uh, from a donor who was just calling to update her credit card uh, on Friday, and she got chatting with me. And we just, I was able to say, oh, I just got off the phone with Uganda. This is some of the amazing things we're seeing there. And we've been able to feed starving, starving people who've been locked down for weeks and weeks as a result of the pandemic. Uh, so I just got to share with her. We've opened up a kitchen to feed an entire community. We're feeding hundreds and hundreds of meals every day. We've got a motorcycle that's delivering uh, meals to the infirm, the elderly who can't get to the kitchen and stuff. And, and I said, you know, we just sent enough money to, to do another uh, 30,000 meals or something like that. And she said, oh, bless her heart. This, this woman says to me, oh, well, that's not enough. She says, can I give another hundred right now? Uh, and because they, they need more. I said, absolutely, let's do it. So the cool thing was because of how small the world is, believe it or not, she, she made that donation over the phone within, uh, I'm going to say three and a half minutes. By the time I hung up the phone, I was able to actually forward those dollars immediately to our partners in Uganda. Uh, it was nighttime there. So about eight hours later, that uh, those funds had arrived on their phone. They arrived on within minutes, but it, the very next morning they went to the market, they purchased the food to go and feed even more families the very next day. So one of the great things is just how small this world is, how rapidly things can happen. When we see desperation, uh, your response is going to turn into the mercy of God so quickly in a very practical yeah, way. That's, so. that's pretty exciting. So <laughs> Somebody in North America to give and the next day it's food in somebody's... Yeah. Plate. Um, Brad, this has been wonderful. Um, Just to, to, for the listeners to know that that part of this great journey we've all been on um, has really impacted the way I'm teaching uh, Matthew's gospel. So we're using Matthew's gospel and we're getting lots of stuff from it. And, you know, I I like to draw from from the, the, the church fathers and from all kinds of streams. But Again and again each week, we're coming back to what I've learned from Brad. We now apply a passage. What's the literal reading? What's the moral reading? What's the water to wine or the spiritual reading? So if you want to get a little bit of a handle on how do I make this practical in the way I read the scriptures, join us for for Matthew on 
uh, suddenly went blank. Thursdays, Thursdays at 3, at 3 p.m. There we go. <laughs> on YouTube Live, <laughs> Facebook Live, or head to impactnations.com slash podcast. Hit subscribe to the audio podcast. It'll be delivered right to you uh, along with this episode. So if you've been taking notes or whatever and you missed some stuff, you want to go back and listen again, just hit subscribe. And this episode will probably be on your phone by this afternoon. So, uh, And I'm getting a nod from Isaiah, who probably he'll be working on that as soon as we end this, which is probably about right now. Right so, now. Uh, Brad, Good. thank you so much. Thank you to all of our listeners who submitted questions who've been watching. Uh, God bless you. Have a great week.